Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Minute where we got ourselves a deal in Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are talking about Minute 40, which begins with Zeta recounting the compound's recent losses, and it ends with Max leaving the compound by night, carrying the fuel for the rig. Today is Fresh Eyes Friday, which means we are joined by our very special guest, our own Gerald Christopher Marcus Porter from Indiana Jones Minute. Thank you for having me on the show. I absolutely love The Road Warrior and Mad Max and all things that are, and uh, you do sound confident. (laughs) Now, Jerry, for people that don't listen to the Indiana Jones Minute, and shame on them if they don't, because it's an amazing program, can you give us a little bit of a rundown of the things that you do in real life and on the internet? Well, with Indiana Jones Minute, we do what a lot of this Movies by Minute podcast do. We've gone through Raiders of the Lost Ark. We started with that, did it one minute at a time. We've completed that, and we said, God, that was crazy. Let's do Temple of Doom. (laughs) So about a month or so ago, we finally wrapped up Temple of Doom, and uh, we will be starting Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade sometime in the near future. Nice. Definitely committed and doing it. Outside of that, I'm a musician. I live in Los Angeles. I play the drums. I play drums for Dick Dale, a guitarist, the old school, super way old school guitarist. Guitarist. Kind of reminds me of the Road Warrior, thinking, hearkening back to a different time. <laughs> that type of that type of rock and roll. Nice. And you get a lot of opportunities to travel around with that, right? I think you were in the Boston area, like um, back in August, August or July or something like that. Yeah, like maybe about a month ago or so, and uh, played the Middle East Club, which is a really fun club. It saw a lot of movie by minute people, uh, Sean German, and a whole bunch of Indiana Jones minute fans, and and just people who are part of this community, the Movie by Minute community. And that's actually a lot of fun. I love it. It's a great community, and everybody's funny and clever and supportive and and also has all their own signatures and takes on each each podcast and show. Nice. Have you been able to be on a good cross-section of all the shows that are out there? You know, I have. I did Gremlins recently. I did Snow White, which I had no idea what the hell I was getting into originally because I think the last time I saw that I was six. (laughs) And so that was a lot of fun. Yeah, we talked about the famous song Whistle While You Twerk. And that was kind of (laughs) with the chip. That's really what I remember. The chipmunks were twerking on the dishes (laughs) during that famous number. Wow, I, I think I need to go back and watch that movie again. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's all right there. And I've I've done, geez, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 different ones, doing the Die Hard Minute, Princess Bride, Big Trouble in Little China. So there's a whole bunch of them out there, and it's a lot of fun. And you get to see movies, some of which I had never seen, and some of them are, are ones you know by mm. heart. And you just discuss them and, with other people, and it's a completely different forum, and you find out all sorts of different takes and opinions on your favorites or movies you've never seen. Now, speaking of movies you know by heart, you mentioned this before we started recording. Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior had a prominent place in the Porter household. Is that right? Absolutely, absolutely. 
I grew up with two older sisters, and I mean, the Road Warrior came out, which was the first one we saw. And so I had two older sisters, and bam, Mel Gibson hits the screen. <laughs> And it moths to the flame, massive heartthrob, and my sisters were all over it, drooling on the television. And of course, I was kind of, you know, th- then it has cars. Mm-hmm. Cars and machine guns and crossbows on cars. So you, you got me as like a nine-year-old or whatever I was. And we had the movie, it was the sort of thing, like, you know, we probably recorded it off Showtime, like, you know, we picked it up 20 minutes in and like, quick, record, record, hit record. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'd watch the movie. I've, I've probably seen it 50 times. Interestingly enough, the last time I saw it was maybe, I don't know, 20 or 25 years ago. So it was great. I watched it again last night and I'm blown away at how well it stands up. Mm-hmm. I mean... I knew it was going to be good, and I'm just a fanboy of it in general. But I'm like, no, forget all that stuff, you know, growing up. The movie's incredible today. And it's just a great story. And it's like bare bones and raw and dirty. And it's like at the end, you're just, there's a bone. Yeah. (laughs) On the ground, there's just a bone. And they trim off all the fat and nonsense. It's just, I was like, I want to watch it tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a good plan. Absolutely. Let's jump into minute 40. At the end of yesterday's minute, Max was sitting around the table with the, I guess, leading counsel of the compound. And Zeta leaned in and he said, we lost and we got cut off by the minute. And so we pick up today with Zeta continuing, eight good people this morning. So he's very concerned. They've already lost a fair amount of people on this fool's errand of finding the rig. And Max is sitting there at the edge of the table and he glances away because he saw firsthand what happened to one set of two out of that eight. Right. And it almost feels like Zeta is going to protest the idea of Max leaving. But then he says... What's he got in mind? Eight people is what? That's about 25% of their population, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think the gyro captain said they had 30 people in the compound. Yes. Oh, so now it's even more. Yeah, I think it's almost a third, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's pretty bad. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, as you said, on this mission, they send people in five different directions. And then at that point, it's just a numbers game, right? Exactly. Two or three of them get caught, and maybe one guy finds an appropriate vehicle or a rig to haul the tanker. And you're like, they don't really have numbers on their side here. Mm -mm. One thing that I appreciate, though, is that Zeta's pretty confident. And when I say confident, I also mean competent, because he's able to realize that the scouts that they sent out that morning, they're just ordinary people. I don't think anyone in that compound, aside from, you know, people like Virginia Hay and Papagallo and the curmudgeon, like, they're just normal people that are hanging out there. And so when you send them out as scouts, it's a huge gamble. That gamble doesn't exist with Max. Zeta is able to recognize that Max is a true wastelander. He knows his way around that situation. And so just by numbers and experience, Max has a way better chance of succeeding. Well, and you mentioned that he's a wastelander. And I like that because one of my notes was, it's kind of at the beginning, he learns to live again in the wasteland. Mm -hmm. So you're like, this guy's already done the heavy lifting of what it takes to survive out there. I don't know if the compound people are there. As you said, they're ordinary, but 
they well they all get hunted down and slaughtered yeah <laughs> so the answer is no i think what was interesting is how quickly papagallo just agrees to max's deal mm-hmm. and it just i mean what is it like an a seven second conversation ultimately i mean he's kind of like all right you got yourself a deal you know and it's because they're so desperate mm-hmm. yeah the whole first half of this minute 28, 30 seconds is them discussing this deal. I appreciate that Papagallo approved the plan so quickly because Max is actually not asking for a lot up front. He's not actually asking for a lot overall, but up front, he just wants five gallons of diesel and some high octane gas. He doesn't even say how much he wants. That's not that much in the grand scheme of things. And Virginia makes a comment that, oh, we'll never see him again after he gets it. Well, no big deal if you never see him again. Mm -hmm. So it's a really good bet to take. Yeah, when you've got thousands of gallons of gasoline in a tanker. Right. You know, giving away what ten gallons? You know, I mean, no it, biggie. To use an old phrase, it's it's a drop in the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> well, not not only that. If he doesn't return or gets killed or whatever, they've gained his interceptor. Yes, which is way valuable. Yes. Either as a commodity, if you're selling it, I don't know if you'd you wouldn't want to sell it because you know Wes or somebody would buy it, and then you're screwed. <laughs> but you know that it's one of the fastest cars that you can find. So at the very least if you're really doomed and max doesn't come back you give one of the ordinary people the interceptor maybe they have a fighting chance because it's such a badass vehicle mm-hmm. and it contains food which i have often on wondered about their food supply and there's food in that car i mean it's dog food <laughs> it's but... dog food <laughs> that's true but max is doing okay so we scoff at it being dog food but it's not just it's... any dog food it's dinky die dog food and that's the real deal Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's absolutely right. And clearly everybody loves it. Exactly. Yeah. We don't see one man or woman or dog in the movie shaking their paws at at dinky dye (laughs) dog food. No. I know I've been saying this for a couple of months now that we're at minute 40, that we're we're eventually going to talk about the process of refining oil into gasoline. And I think with Max describing to the council at the table that to do the job, he needs five gallons of diesel and some high-octane gasoline, that now seems like as good a time as any to overly simplify and do a terrible job at explaining the process of turning crude oil into gasoline. So special thanks to sjvgeology.org and their page about oil refinery, because that's where I got a lot of this information. So we'll uh, sit back and uh, we'll discuss the three seemingly simple steps that actually are way more complicated (laughs) than they actually start out. So we start, step one is separation. You pump the crude oil out of the ground, then you put that oil through some heated pipes in order to vaporize it. The vapor then goes into a distillation tower, which is the large cylindrical structure in the middle of the compound that the lookouts walk around on and the vapor starts to separate based on its density and boiling point and everything like that the lightest fractions which is what they call the different sections of the vaporized oil those include gasoline and liquid petroleum gas and they vaporize and rise to the top of the tower where they condense back into liquids the medium weight liquids are obviously in the middle those include kerosene and diesel oil and they kind of run off a little bit lower 
And then down at the bottom, that's where you get the really dense stuff that can be processed later into lighter qualities of fuel. So once you've got them separated, you go into step two, which is the conversion. The most widely used conversion method is called cracking, which uses heat and pressure to take the molecules in those liquids and crack them into smaller bits because the molecules that make up those oils and gasoline types, their quality is dictated by the size of the molecules. So if you've got two big molecules, you got to break them down into something smaller and more usable. So using intense heat and low pressure and a powdered catalyst, the cracker, which is the thing that cracks the molecules, appropriately named, can convert those relatively heavy fractions into smaller molecules. And then after you've converted it, it goes into step three, which is treatment. So the last step requires technicians to use a variety of streams and chemicals and processes in order to produce the different octane levels of gasoline. Technicians also add performance additives and things like dyes to distinguish the various grades of fuel. So when you see oil spill out into a surface, sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's tinted red, and those are there to distinguish the quality of the gasoline that you're looking at. This is a super simplified way to look at it. So what I'm going to do, if you look at the post for this episode on madmaxminute.com, there's going to be a video underneath the main section of that post. It's an old one, but it's a goodie. It's uh, like a 13-minute video made in 1947 by Ethel Corp out of Richmond, Virginia. It's what I watched to help put that list together so everyone can watch that it's going to do a much better job than i just did (laughs) that was pretty good it is old school yeah seriously old school but it's got some good graphics showing you about like the different pipes and the different chambers and all kinds of stuff like that it was i watched it look like uh you know oil refinery brought to you by the little rascals yep (laughs) yes yeah Exactly. We'll also share that to our uh, Facebook listeners group. I guess. Beyond microphone. (laughs) (laughs) It was helpful to me. Previous to that, I knew that the different types of byproducts were separated in like chambers via vapor. And that was really all I knew. So that was very helpful. Mm -hmm. It did bring up another question to me. Um, I've had lots of questions about their other supplies. Well, do they have a supply of catalyst material? They must have brought it from the company that Papagallo was working at. Yeah, Mm. and you don't have to crack it. Mm-hmm. You can, oh, what was it called? I think it's called straight line fuel. Yeah, straight line fuel. Which is which basically is what old school cars. Yeah, you just distill it and that's it. And that's <laughs> it. But it wasn't very efficient. Right. You wouldn't get a good conversion rate from the crude oil into the usable gasoline. There'd be a right. lot of waste because all of that heavier material would just settle into sludge. Yeah. So I'm wondering what they're doing with all the other parts of the crude oil that doesn't turn into diesel or gasoline or well things I mean, that they are using on a regular basis there's other stuff that comes out of there i have a feeling they're probably using it in their defense hmm. you've got that one guy who has that giant flaming ball on the end of a chain that okay he swinging yeah. around above his head you know i like that idea because it, it seems less wasteful mm-hmm. they're not just they're not using gasoline that would be the same gasoline to fuel cars they're using the other stuff to fuel their flamethrower. You gotta use every part of the proverbial buffalo. Yeah. (laughs) Let me just 
propose this. Imagine, if you will, a sign right out front the compound, and it says, gasoline for sale. <laughs> like i mean right and then he said well then what are you gonna we go that's all right we can we, we can go on the barter system i mean yes. it worked before I... right it worked before we had we had tender and currency and paper money and coins and all that i mean they certainly have no problem with with junk dealers and junk peddlers and all sorts of people who i mean you know this would go back it, it would be a little bit medieval which is fine <laughs> It's post-apocalyptic. It's fine to be medieval for a while. Yes, Jerry, it's fun to barter, but at the same time, if there's anything that the Lord Humongous' horde loves more, it's murder. <laughs> they just love killing people. That's true. I think let's circle back around to where we're at. We just left off Max sitting with the people at the table. He just mentioned that he wants some high-octane gasoline. Now, real quick, high-octane gasoline is based on the uh, compression ratio or supercharger boost that a gasoline has. And so high-octane gasoline takes a lot more processing to produce. And so when he says, I want diesel, which is fairly easy to get, and then I want high-octane gasoline, which is maybe not so easy to get, you can kind of understand why Papagallo just kind of sits there staring at Max when he asks this, and then you get curmudgeon that's starting to shift, and Zeta is leaning forward because they realize that he wants the good stuff. Yeah. That's like walking into a restaurant and asking for prime rib instead of a hamburger, and they're a little concerned with it, and Max says, you know, think of it as a down payment. Now, this is where we get other members of the council weighing in. Warrior Woman is the first, so Virginia leans in and she's like, and that's the last we'll see of him. And I love how cynical she is towards Max. Oh, she just fights him at every turn. Every single turn. She hates the idea of him being in the compound. Yeah. Well, she famously says, we fight for a belief. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't like the idea that he deals in human flesh. Yes. Right. Max isn't fighting for a belief. Max no. fights for himself. He's Max is he's part of the problem. Yeah. Yes. He's he's fighting for gasoline. The end. Yep. Gasoline. And the only reason that he is doing this service for these people is because he has cut a deal and he is going to get as much gasoline as he can carry mm -hmm. he's pulling a han solo pretty much i was just gonna say it he's pulling a han solo yes <laughs> yes and he and he has been the entire movie if gasoline is all you want <laughs> then gasoline is what you'll get yes and max is very clear about the deal that he is cutting. Yeah. He was very clear in the previous minute, number 39, and then again at the very end of this minute. He is walking out into the wasteland in the middle of the night. He turns around and says, all the fuel I can carry, right? Like he confirms the deal one more time. He is adamant. Yeah. Because the last time he made a deal, the other guy died on him. Yeah. And for his trouble, he got his car taken away. Yeah. Which, can we talk about the car for a second? The compound dwellers, where do they get off taking his car and holding it for ransom? They have weapons. But what? <sighs> He's outnumbered. <laughs> but why? Uh, because they can. <laughs> but but they're, they're not supposed to be like that. They wear light colors. They're supposed to be good. <laughs> They, we've said it before, they are coded as the good people, and the Marauders, and Max, by the way, are coded as the bad people. So where do the good people get off taking his car? That shouldn't be a deal that he has to do this huge favor to get back his car. 
he's an outsider. As you said, he's wearing black. He's an outsider. They're going to view him as, look, we don't owe this guy anything. We don't need to kill him, but we certainly, you know, uh, they probably see, a, a, you know, the, the, the end justifies the means when it comes to the interceptor and ransoming it. Uh, yeah, I, but he did it's not like he forced his way into the compound. They brought him in forcefully. Well, he didn't have a choice. He needs, I mean, he's eating dinky, he's eating, eating dinky D dog food and is out of gas. I mean, he's, he's one of those guys who wakes up and he looks at his weekly planner and there's nothing on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's just going, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, he he shows up. Like, it's even risky for him. He shows up at their gate, and they're like, yo, get the hell out of here. You know, and he he's, you know, he's carrying one of their own, and the guy's dead. He's trying to save him and all that, and they don't even like all that. Nope. And they, and they still don't trust him. They still don't trust him, even though he, you know, sort of performed a mitzvah by trying to save the guy's life. Yes, he, he wanted he wanted gasoline, too. He's using him to bargain. And that's what I think the warrior woman is, is objecting to here, is that, yeah, thanks for bringing back the dude, but we know you, you only brought back, you know, our guy to save his life to get the gasoline. And Max is like, yep. <laughs> yep. He's okay with that assessment. Yep. Yeah. It just, it annoys me that they treat him that way. Yeah. Luckily for Max, in this situation specifically, he's got the curmudgeon in Big Rebecca who seem to have switched around from their earlier opinions. They're a bit more pragmatic now. They seem to have softened. They were quite adamant, rebellious earlier on in the day. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of in a scary way, like from Papagallo's perspective, he's got this compound kind of under his thumb. And, you know, maybe all he has to do is give an inspiring speech to keep everybody in line. And all of a sudden it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, they were about two seconds away from a full-on mutiny. And so if Max had not spoken up, there would have been a lot of conflict. And now that Max has laid out what he wants to do, I mean, Warrior Woman's like, yeah, we'll never see him again. And Curmudgeon's like, yeah, but we have his car. And Rebecca's like, well, you know, if he dies out there in the wasteland, we're going to be in the same exact position we are now, so we might as well. And Papagallo takes this into consideration, and that's when he says... You've got yourself a deal. And so Max stands up from the table and we get a nice screen right to uh, outside the, the barbed wire wall. Before we leave this scene, I just want one last quick thing and then we'll jump into the next scene. This entire scene with them in conference and with the, uh, the council, classic movie star lighting with Mel Gibson, mm. like just his eyes are illuminated. And uh, Mel Gibson has beautiful eyes and they really play them up in this scene. And it's beautiful. He's hot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he's in his prime. Yep. He's in his element. Yeah. And, you know, this great Australian film. Yeah. It's it's wonderful. Yep. I, you know, it's hard. He's like, I even came away last night going, I wonder if he's a little bit hotter than Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I mean, it crossed Ooh. my mind. I'm backing up. I'm back. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I'm not. You know, I I felt that way for a night. Yeah. I was like, if I could, you know, if I want to be one of those guys, which is it? I might want to be Mad Max. <laughs> I had a little emotional minute about 2 a.m. <laughs> Finish the movie. What Indiana Jones has above Mad Max? I'm sorry to say, because I want to be loyal to Mad Max, but Indiana Jones cleans up really well, Mm -hmm. and you get to see it. Yeah. I'm sure that Mad Max would clean up well, but we don't ever get to see it. Nope. Well, but here's what's great. Mad Max doesn't care about cleaning up. 
Nope. No, <laughs> the end. he really does yeah. not. I don't. We never see him cleaned up. I never want to see him cleaned up. He doesn't clean up. He dies before he cleans up. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I think at the end of this scene, what we see is everybody has a garbage ass hand <laughs> to play. No, I mean, I mean, maybe like maybe the compound has a pair of twos, but nobody can play any good hand here. Everybody's desperate. Max is desperate. He's out of gas. He's eating dinky doo. Dinky D, whatever. The the compound people need to, they, they can't stay there. And even Humongous, I mean, he's got his own problems. Mm -hmm. He can't penetrate. To say nothing of the fact that he's probably going to get skin cancer at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I think skin cancer is the least of Humongous's medical problems. <laughs> Who knows what he has now? Yeah. 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 I mean, we don't, maybe he was a lot bigger, you know, like, like six months ago. And maybe people are looking at him like, you see, Humongous is actually not so Humongous anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he's shrinking. Speaking of small people, as we join the compound dwellers at the edge of the barbed wire fence they seem to be pulling apart an opening and through the hole in the fence david who the credits call the quiet man scrambles through that hole and he starts holding on to some boards that are going across the ditch the the moat that surrounds the compound and as he's there steadying that makeshift bridge max appears and he's got this big old pole across his shoulders and he's holding what appear to be i think four just big old jerry cans yeah fun fact about the jerry can it's a robust liquid container made from pressed steel it was designed in germany in the 1930s for military use to hold 20 liters or about 5.3 gallons of fuel and as far as the history of the jerry can is concerned it's notable because the german design was reverse engineered and subsequently copied with minor modification by the allies during the second world war and the name of the jerry can refers to its german origins jerry being a wartime slang for a german soldier and now you know and now you know i it, we, we discussed that actually at uh, in uh raiders i believe it, we, we came came across the jerry can uh, as well i did you guys notice that somebody puts like a little oil in i guess max's <laughs> mm -hmm. knee yes. or shin is, is that is that the high octane I'm not exactly sure what quality of oil they're using to oil his uh, leg brace there, but I'm glad that as he's walking out, somebody notices, wow, hey, Max, your leg brace is incredibly loud and would make sneaking incredibly hard. So let's oil up those joints for you. Oh. Yes. Is that what it is? Yes. It it's very so, similar to the Tin Man yeah, in Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it was so Tin Man-like. I loved it. Yeah. Now all they need to do is oil up the rest of him, which <laughs> right. I'm okay with, um, because his leather is so loud. Yeah, he's got squeaky leather syndrome, uh, where yes. anytime he walks, it's just, it sounds like two couch cushions rubbing together. Yeah. It's like that old SNL sketch of the Leather Man, where yeah. every time he walks across the set, it's just leather noise. It really adds something to scenes. <laughs> I thought he had like maybe a high octane flask and like on his <laughs> shin or something. That's where they put it because he's got the the jerry cans he's holding, and then in addition to he needs the mm -hmm. high octane. Well, the oh. okay. I had a question about the high octane. I know we're going backwards, but I'm going anyways. What was that for? Okay, the five gallon 
gallons of diesel, obviously, so we can drive the rig back. Mm -hmm. What was the high octane for? Now, high octane, that gives more, like, get up and go, right? Right. Like, higher power. Higher octane allows a higher compression ratio or supercharger boost. So, what I assume he's bringing that high octane gasoline with for him when he has for... To race the marauders back to the compound pretty much he knows that he's going to have to get that rig running so he probably needs something with a high compression to actually get yeah. that engine okay. from that the seized sense. state that it's probably in into something a bit more you know mobile so that he can move it so can, and then okay. he probably you know needs it to get that thing going quickly so a combination of diesel and high octane gasoline is probably what he's going to put into that tank. Listeners, if you know how to get an old rig running using diesel and high-octane gasoline, if that's something you mix, jump on our listeners page, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and let us know, because, as I said before, I'm terrible with explaining gas things. <laughs> you know, I just want to go out on a limb here and say, what the hell is Max thinking here? Like, his plan is to walk outside the compound carrying these jerry cans like heavy ass jerry cans with a squeaky ass knee mm -hmm. and he's gonna walk to the rig and we know that these wes guys have owl like ears they hear every snap crackle and pop in the middle of the night this guy's gonna walk out there walk to the rig put gas in and then in the morning just drive it through their compound into the gate Mm-hmm. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. We're going to see if it pays off. I mean, that's his plan? I think the, the craziest part of this plan is that it is approximately 20 miles from the compound to the gyrocopter. Mm. And it's an unknown distance between the rig and the gyrocopter. Yeah. And we see later on that when he gets back to that gyrocopter, he and the gyro captain, spoiler alert, we're going to see the gyrocopter again, use that machine to fly to the rig. Mm. So it's a, an incredibly significant distance that Max is planning to just traverse on foot like you do the irony of this entire situation is they got the wrong guy <laughs> <laughs> this is a job for the gyro captain someone with a long stride yeah he just fly he just flies up goes to the rig and mm -hmm. he takes takes somebody with them or yeah you don't give the guy with a blown out knee the job of walking no over 20 miles carrying four jerry cans full of fuel no and by the way without the help of the feral kid he's not he you know he's caught and fried and over with mm -hmm. yeah next week is pretty dark yeah i'll say that much about it <laughs> <laughs> i just i mean I, i'm just saying that the plan is pretty half-assed yeah it ain't it, it's not yeah, yeah yeah i think it's a mark of the desperation that they all feel yeah that this crazy plan they're willing to try it i think you're right and if if he thinks that he can get out by walking quietly at night, can't they do that with other people? Like, is this the first time somebody has snuck out? Yeah, I don't know. Possibly. Yeah, I mean, I know sneaking out on foot is foolish, which is why they sent the scouts out in vehicles, but it kind of seems to be no big deal to them to sneak a guy out the back in the middle of the night. Right. I have a feeling that Max would prefer it. 
that way. What's interesting is Max is the only person in the entire movie, maybe other than the gyro captain, who knows where the rig is. No one else has found it, right? Well, you've got Wes. Yeah, Wes knows, he knows where, where the is. rig is. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's true. It's actually true. surprising yes. that Wes never brings up that fact because if the scouts are looking for a rig, Wes knows where a rig is located. Humongous could send some guys out get that rig, and then just sit there, just out of range of the compound's weapons, and say, hey, look what we've got. We've got a rig, and you don't. But we know why. We know why Wes doesn't mention the rig, or even get there, or think about problem-solving with the rig. He's blinded by his own emotions. Mm. And that's just, Wes is just that dude. You know, he's not exactly, he. he's just, his, his emotions just lead him around wherever. He gets angry, he acts on that. And that's pretty much it. That's a good point. Then he goes to sleep. Yeah, yeah he gets angry or he goes to sleep. Because Wes, <laughs> Wes and his group, they didn't interrogate their scouts. They, you know, brutalized and, you know, more or less murdered their scouts. When Wes gets back in step with the Horde, he's there, and Lord Humongous says, you know, your scouts tell me that you're looking for a machine, and that's probably the first that Wes is hearing about this idea that they're looking for a rig. And before Wes has any opportunity to mention anything, yeah, the feral child pops out of the ground, there's that thing with the boomerang and the golden youth, and Wes just goes off all ragey and gets knocked out before he has the opportunity to even bring up that information, and I have a feeling that him and Lord Mungus don't talk much for the rest of the film. Wes is the type of guy that you just, every once in a while, you gotta put him to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? He's like a flying boom. Yeah, it's just like, and sometimes, especially if you're humongous, you're doing some diplomacy. Even if you're being duplicitous, you have the face of diplomacy. And you got this guy coming in and he's berserking all over and screaming everywhere. And it, everything's about him all the time and his mohawk and his half-assed chaps out. It's just like, look, man, just slow down. It, we just, we needed to stop for a minute, Wes. And that's exactly what Humongous does. You can imagine Lord Humongous walking over to Wes's cubicle and he's got that mug and he puts his arm up on the cube and says, listen, Wes, I'm going to need you to just <laughs> not berserk as much. Yeah. And uh, also come in on Saturday. And of course, Wes would just fly off the handle and, and whatnot. Uh, so pretty much the last we see of Max, he gets his knee oiled. He looks back at Papagallo and says, my vehicle and as much juice as I can carry. Papagallo nods. Carmudgeon does like a little salute. And then we see Max turn away. And then we get a nice shot of all of the dwellers watching Max just walk into the darkness. And the captain's girl, Archie Whitley, is there and she's holding the feral child and they just watch him walk into the darkness. And that wraps up this week. They seem hopeful watching him leave. <laughs> they have to be. Yeah. They have you know, to be. Not yeah. overly hopeful, cautiously hopeful. Yeah. We either come, you come back with the rig or you get the interceptor. Exactly. Right. Yeah. They're kind of not going to lose. Yeah. They know what they something. would prefer. Uh, I really love that uh, Arky is holding on to the feral child. I... I, I worry about the feral child. He's he's not getting the parental love and guidance and nurturing that he needs, which is why he's feral. Yeah. <laughs> so I worry about him. So I, I really liked seeing Arky like big sister him a little bit. Yeah. He needs he's one of those he's one of those kids who needs somebody to read to him nightly. Yeah. Yes. Because <laughs> he can't speak. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, he's he's still grunting. Yeah, so he needs to. Yeah, he needs to yeah. listen to people talk and yeah. learn to mimic. Mm-hmm. He starts slowly. Yeah, you know, one sock, two socks. <laughs> yeah, we need uh, we need some Doctor Seuss in the wasteland, but we've uh, we've done some looking forward. Let's uh, let's look back at the week that was, and we'll do our quick end of the week recap so monday we saw the lord humongous turn around and drive away for the time being and then that began the uh quote-unquote discussion between the compound dwellers over whether they should uh take the marauders up on their uh, offer or or not and big rebecca was really adamant that they should just walk away the strength of her arguing <laughs> kind of annoyed me a little bit. <laughs> yeah. She was just so adamant without actually giving any reasons for being adamant. I think she's beleaguered and tired. Yes. And I think we did talk about She was motivated by, by the death of Nathan. Yes. Mm-hmm. The loss that she had suffered. Yeah. Like she has reasons but they're all in her head. She's arguing but not like bringing up the points that we've lost so many people. Let's See if we can not lose any more. We honed in on the experience of her loss and how that was tainting her perspective of the situation. And as she's standing up there pleading with people to just give in to the Lord Humongous's plans, Zeta comes up and he's offering his assessment of the situation, which is our assessment of the situation, that given the opportunity, Lord Humongous would slaughter all of them like pigs and that's what we saw on tuesday zeta got up he countered big rebecca's argument by pointing out the violence that would be sure to happen and then in came the curmudgeon who appeared in his military-esque garb he was very bound and determined to go parlay with the lord humongous and with the combined efforts of big rebecca and the curmudgeon a lot of the people in the compound appeared to lose hope and started throwing their weapons and that prompted papagallo to start in on one of his speeches but we didn't really get to hear much of it because we got distracted over with Max and the Feral Child. In that scene, the Max and the Feral Child scene, I think it's fascinating that Happy Birthday doesn't resolve. And so, you know, in the, in the music box, he gives him the music box, right? And so we, we see Max sees the Feral Child and he pulls out the music box. And I was thinking to myself, you know, okay, what's the significance of it really? And it's a, you know, it's a symbol of his previous time. We don't really hear music at all. I mean, other than the soundtrack, there's no music anywhere from what I remember. And I remembered that Max got the little music box thing from the dead cab driver. Mm-hmm. And so he was listening to it, you know, when he got torched or burned or whatever. It made me think, like, did he go out just listening to Happy Birthday and it didn't really resolve for him? And I think it's, I don't know, it's just, it's its fascinating because we never hear it really resolve or hear the song Happy Birthday played just completely. And I thought of all the songs, I mean, Happy Birthday, you're like, that's the perfect time marker. You know what I mean? It's like, it makes you think about the passage of time and in a way it's not resolved and also the fact that just the little music box is mechanical and it although it's outside of the movie in a way because it's it's music and it harkens back to an earlier time it's still mechanical with a crank Mm. and so it fits like the th- you know everything in the movie all the cranks and the cranking and the mechanical stuff that we see everywhere so I, that's one of my favorite scenes it never occurred to me before but the music box kind of parallels the journey of 
Max and also the rig. You know, there there's a point in the very beginning where these three items are all together and then they move apart from each other and change hands a little bit. But then in the end, and including the feral child, they all come back together again. Yeah. Well, you you wonder, does does everybody listen and play the music box on their deathbed? <laughs> and, the, and and what's interesting is Max gives it away. He, you know what I mean? I mean, the trucker is, it, you get the impression that that's maybe the last thing he was doing. Mm-hmm. And he died before the song finished. And Max has it and he passes it on to another character, you know? I feel like saying, because we all know he ain't going to die. Mm-hmm. He's, right. he's too cool. He's never going to die. <laughs> but I don't know. It, it The fact that it doesn't resolve, it's like, and, and, and the music box heart, you know, the music box harkens back to an earlier time, but the song is never complete. It's like, well, you can't go back. I mean, these com- this, these compound people maybe are trying to by either starting their own little society or to go back and, you know, like Warrior Woman says, well... You know, I I have a I have I have a belief. You know, I you know she, where she says you know she she's fighting for something, and you get the impression it's it's she's fighting for stability and order or what's good, and yet at the same time they can't go back to that time. It's not that time now, and they can't go back, and the <laughs> damn song never finishes. <laughs> you know what I mean? For anybody, even the feral kid plays it, and it's all wanky. He like cranks it too fast. It's very unsatisfying. Yeah. I almost want to say that when the feral child gets his hands on the music box, despite seeing Max turn it in a specific direction, when he gets his hand on it, it sounds so weird. I think because he tries to crank it backwards. Mm. Kind of a metaphor Mm -hmm. or demonstration on how when you try to turn things back to the way they were, it just makes things more jumbled and chaotic where you need to be turning that metaphorical crank in the correct direction for things to start going well. Sort of a subtle way to say that instead of trying to recreate what was, we need to constantly be moving forward, which kind of echoes the words of the narrator. He says, only those mobile enough to scavenge would survive. There's this idea of movement equaling survival, and staying put is the death sentence. If you cannot move, you will die. And so that's kind of shown in the situation that the compound is in. They are not moving, and so this horde has come along and has started picking them off slowly. And if they don't get out on that road, they're not going to get anywhere. That's fantastic. I love that. You're right. He does. You can't go back. And he plays it. He doesn't. He Every time you try and go back, it just gets jumbled. Mm-hmm. And we see he doesn't know how to work it. And you're like, why? And you're like, because he's a new generation who doesn't remember what the hell this thing is. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what it is. He's, so he doesn't know how to work it. It's I mean, nobody's going back. <laughs> and and, and you, he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't even have the memory of what it was. Right. He needs to play with it and figure out how it works that is most pleasing to him. Mm-hmm. And it, that may not be the correct way, according to us. You know, being a young child, he may decide it sounds better going backwards. Yeah. So that's okay. That's now the right way to do it, going backwards, because he gets to decide... Yeah, we saw on Wednesday's episode that when the music box is played in the proper direction, the feral child was mesmerized, but he was 
elated when he got that music box in his hand so that he had the opportunity to manipulate it himself. And as soon as Max tossed that music box down to him, he grabbed it and he turned it and then he looked up at Max and he just grunted and growled and was looked so excited and he rushed back down into his rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Just to do exactly like you were saying, Jerry, you know, discover on his own how to work this thing. And it was at that point that the feral child runs back down underground that we get to see Max focus his attention back over to Papagallo's speech. And so we get the tail end of that. And it's, you know, it's a big rousing speech. And first thing Thursday morning, Big Rebecca just takes a big old steaming dump all over it. <laughs> She's not impressed. Yeah, I, I think we've we've made it clear that we are not fans of Big Rebecca. I'm not a fan of her reasoning. Like, I like the character. I just feel like she was making a poor decision and encouraging others to make poor decisions as well. And I cannot condone that action. She needed to be corrected. And luckily, she did turn around in the end to a more agreeable course of action, coming to Max's defense and encouraging them to go with his plan. But uh, yeah, hearing her for so long, pulling support away from Papagallo, that was frustrating. Mm. There is one aspect to Big Rebecca's arguments that I can appreciate. This compound, not really sure what to call this type of government or leadership structure, but Papagallo is not the end-all be-all leader. Yes, he may have brought them there. He may have had the knowledge that they needed to get going, but that doesn't make him the, you know, all-encompassing king of this little area. I think it's healthy that he's being challenged. The curmudgeon has the general buttons. Like, I don't know. I wonder, what does that stand for? We took a look at some of those buttons the other day, and and they're actually more along the lines of just generic service buttons we only were able to identify the first three there's a total of six and they were all world war ii era correct Mm -hmm. for serving in various parts africa uh italy italy world war ii in general yes Mm -hmm. and so well i guess i mean we see that maybe they're just somewhat adrift yeah papagallo is like he's in charge because well what else are you gonna do yeah i think he's in charge because he knows how to work the refinery yeah. he's the manager mm-hmm. yeah in his pre-collapse lifetime he was an oil executive and so and now in the post-collapse he's more of a a hands-on management type directing the compound dwellers in how to refine the fuel, get them working together. I would just like to take a moment and apologize (laughs) for being so gullible (laughs) in thinking (laughs) now that you're talking about big Rebecca and how, you know, she's, she's, she says, you know, words, just words. We just need to, you know, no, I don't think Lord Humongous will provide clemency (laughs) to anybody who'd like to safely leave. (laughs) I guess I, I, maybe I was uh, being uh, foolishly optimistic. A little quick to drink the Kool-Aid, perhaps. A little crazy. Yeah, yeah. Thinking, you know, think. I mean, there are times, you know, hey, I don't know. I think he, he I, I, I don't know. He, he is kind of like you said at the beginning. He mm-hmm. is convincing. He says it convincingly. <laughs> if you say things convincingly or confidently, yeah. I'm convinced. Speaking of that idea of 
speaking in such a way to captivate people. Thursday, we also got to hear one of my favorite lines in this whole movie, the very line that we use at the beginning of every episode, where Max says, two days ago, I saw a rig that'll haul that tanker. If you want to get out of here, you talk to me. And I love that line. And we got to hear it finally on Thursday. It was so good. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to walk to that tanker. (laughs) And I'm going to do it confidently because if you walk somewhere confidently and act like you belong, then people just let you through. Yeah. I just need my torn meniscus oiled. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I had a couple of questions for for you fellers. Shoot. At the end of the movie, is, is Max sort of unknowingly and unwillingly a savior figure? I'm... Not sure. I I suppose yes. I can't help feeling, without having analyzed it minute by minute yet, I can't help feeling that he's kind of a dupe at the end of this movie. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't, Mm -hmm. I'm correct, he does not know that the tanker is full of sand, correct? (laughs) Not until it's too late. Not until it's too late. Okay, so... Yeah, I feel like he's a dupe. Yeah, so I said like uh, he's unwillingly of it. Yeah, and and then they kind of smack him across the old puss, where all he's worried about is gasoline, and these people are fighting for a belief, and they, I guess, they use him as truly as a pawn. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of interesting, and they don't include him. They're like, fine, you don't want to be part of part of our little you know 2000 mile paradise uh you know we're gonna go go live in uh you know beautiful paradise fine you go do your own thing as you wanted to Mm -hmm. what i find interesting about the end of this movie is that the people that are on the tanker people like virginia and the mechanic and zeta even papagallo they know at least i believe they know that that tanker is full of sand. Max is the only one that doesn't know that they're on a decoy mission because Papagallo would surely tell his second and third in command what's going on. So they know that they're a decoy and they know that all of this fighting that they're doing is just buying time for the rest of the compound dwellers to get away Mm -hmm. with the real fuel in the the vehicles. Mm -hmm. And so everybody on that tanker, with the exception of Max knows it's a decoy, and they all die. And they die knowing that their sacrifice is specifically to buy the other people time. And when Max gets to the end and he sees that sand pouring out, we get this instance where he looks up at the camera and we get something that could be interpreted as a full smile. And in Road War, which is the the behind-the-scenes documentary about the movie, George Miller says that that smile is very deliberate. It's Max's realization that he was a decoy, that he wasn't actually carrying anything valuable. He was just buying time. And in the end, Max is able to bring the feral child back to the vehicles that were actually holding the fuel. He works together with the gyro captain to make that happen. And as we know, he refuses to go with them because he's someone that travels on his own. And I do kind of feel that even though Max didn't want to be, that by the end of the movie, he realizes that he did perform a very important thing for these people and become their deliverer in a way. I wouldn't necessarily say savior, but I feel like deliverer is more appropriate, more specific. I mean, how great is it that our hero gets punked? (laughs) (laughs) i mean and 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 with the smile you wonder does he realize that maybe he was being selfish and 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 maybe there are you know i'm not going to take it far 
at all. But he goes, well, I kind of got had. And then the the gyro captain shows up, and he kind of looks up, and he's like, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) Of all the people to survive. (laughs) But at the same time, it's kind of like accepting. And you're like, but that's how life is. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how weird it is. Of all the people, of course you show up right now. And then he's kind of like, and that's fine. I find the ending to Road Warrior very satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. Which, which I, I, my other question was, you know, it's dirt coming out of the truck, but as, as Max reaches out and holds it in his hand, I, I realized it's also earth. It's like earth coming out and he, and he kind of grabs it and holds it. And then I thought about what's written on the, the rig, I think says earth. Mm-hmm. The tarp hanging on the side of the rig is the vermin have inherited the earth, with earth specifically being written on the side of the cab. Oh. Right. Yes, it says earth, and then you're like, he holds his <laughs> hand out, and you're like, it's not oil. I get that it's not oil, but it is land or earth, you know? And he kind of, it's almost like he realizes that. He realizes that it's not just not oil. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. I fucking love this movie. (laughs) Jerry, it has been a lot of fun having you on. For the people that have enjoyed listening to your voice, and even to the people that may not have, uh, shame on them (laughs) if that's the case. But where can people hear more of you? I would uh, encourage everybody to come to indianajonesminute.com, which is is where we discuss all sorts of things Indiana Jones related. Again, like I said, uh, we've completed Raiders of the Lost Ark. You can listen to all our episodes there, talking about it one minute at a time. We've completed uh, Temple of Doom. You know, you can listen to all that. And then we also do have a Facebook page called the Indiana Jones Listener's Crusade, where there's all sorts of ridiculous nerding out about uh, conspiracy theories and fun stuff and oil and earth and jerry cans, the whole thing. And just by way of personal recommendation, in the hierarchy of Movies by Minute podcasts, because I'm personally involved, I hold my own in highest regard. (laughs) (laughs) But I personally consider Indiana Jones Minute right up there in the upper echelon with the granddaddies at Star Wars Minute. You guys over there, I love what you're doing, and I cannot wait for The Last Crusade to start. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. We have a good time with it. <laughs> Certainly do. Which is fun. Yeah, we have a good time with it. That's, that's what it is. And, and, and thank you so much for having me on the Mad Max Minute. I love Road War. It's one of my favorite movies, so I really appreciate you giving me an opportunity to talk about it with you guys. Of course. Oh, our pleasure. It's been so much fun having you. It's always nice to, to uh, get a fresh voice. Yes. Fresh set of opinions. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 40 of The Road Warrior. We'll see you on Monday. Well, you, 
you know, you bring up a great point, though. What do they do for fresh water here? Hmm. I mean, they have the large pump for oil. Right. But you don't really see any pumps for water. Right. Now, this is kind of beyond my knowledge set, but if you're drilling down for oil, are you going to pass through the water table? I think most to of get the time, the oil? you have to go deeper so, than the water table. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So there could be a secondary pump for water. Very well could be. Mm-hmm. Which water pumps are much smaller. They do not have to be a big oil derrick setup. So it could be just. Yeah, I imagine like them having a nice manual hand crank manual style. Manual, manual. <laughs> they have electricity. <laughs> <laughs> you get an electric motor on that thing. Yeah. Get, get running water. I'm curious to how this little oasis formed. You know, there's like the oil derrick, and then let's assume there's, you know, there's a little bit, there's like a nice little aquifer there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then they, like Papagallo, whatever, he, I don't know, came upon it? Well. You know, of that, how long has it been there? In the screenplay that did not make it to screen, it tells us that in the flashback sequence in the very beginning, it showed almost like oil baron offices mm. that were being like actively abandoned. One of the people was Papagallo, who was packing up maps and instruction manuals and useful information. And he went out to this pump that had been previously owned by his big giant company that he worked for and started pumping oil and built a refinery. And we're not really sure how everybody else got there. We theorized in a past episode, I think this week. Yeah, I think so. We talked about it. Okay. That some of the prominent people in the community. Maybe Zeta, Warrior Woman, maybe were co-workers of his that came with him. That's fascinating. But a lot of the other people we think are people that just he picked up along the way. Mm-hmm. And in the speech that we don't get to listen to because we're too busy watching Max and the Feral Child, Papagallo keeps on talking and he recounts in the screenplay how he came to this place and he built up the refinery and he started farming the land and how he made it a sustainable plot, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So it's really all Papagallo. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating because it's sustainable except for the def- their defenses. Right. Yes. So it's like they're ca- they're kind of building up their own little country or state here. And you're like, well, for natural resources, we're crushing it. And, you know, we got a little government thing going on. Even one guy who's wearing little general buttons. Mm-hmm. That's cool. But then you're like, our defense system is lacking. <laughs> yeah, it's good for short term. It's good mm-hmm. for short term, yeah. now that they've been facing this long term assault, it just isn't holding up. When all you've got is two heavy emplacements and then a bunch of bows and arrows, they don't have the tactical capability of repelling a large scale force. Yeah. They're nowhere near as defensible as like a castle with large towers that you can launch and stuff from. stores of supplies. Yeah. There's a supreme irony here that, you know, one of their main weapons is a flamethrower. Yes. yes. <laughs> when, you know, when everybody else is putting plates under gasoline tanks of crashed cars to collect every last drop. These guys are just liberally lighting up <laughs> lighting up whatever they want <laughs> with a flamethrower. And I have to say, that's really a thumb in your eye to Humongous. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, you just Thank feel you. like, whatever's cool. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. I made that point, I think, last week, and I feel like I got a lot of flack from Rick about it. But... <laughs> He, that I thought Humongous made a good point about the uh, oil being removed from the wasteland. 
that the wasteland deserved that oil and that it should stay in the wasteland to serve wastelanders. But nope, they're just literally throwing it in your face and then they're going to cart it off. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what's great? It does work. I mean, it does work. It's kind of like a, its own little fiery moat. Yes. If you're coming anywhere near the door, it's like, wha-bam, and it's just conflagration, and it's like, you, the car, you're not shooting at everybody. The enemy car explodes. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, uh, the, uh, everybody else, you, you can't salvage the vehicle. You can't salvage the gasoline. It's really just, uh, I mean, it really will hit, you know, it, it kind of knocks the esprit de corps, your, your, you know, your uh, morale. Yes. Yeah, you can be as gung-ho yeah. as you want to try and take over that compound, but when the vehicle you're in suddenly becomes an oven, yes. and you're like cooking in there, your resolve is going to is gonna evaporate. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Literally. And, not, and not only that, you, can, you can't even salvage the vehicle mm -hmm. or anything. It's not like somebody gets shot with an arrow off, and you're like, that's fine, we'll just get some other chump to jump on back, you know, some other brigand. I do have a question for you guys, if you can explain this to me, and maybe it's because I'm still 10 years old <laughs> <laughs> watching this. So they have an oil derrick, mm -hmm. and it's pumping oil ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk the whole time, and they're all good. Now, for whatever reason, they want to leave the wasteland instead of build it up and like build a, a community there. They want to go 2,000 miles to the coast. They just need safe passage and enough petrol to get there. Why is the tanker the most important thing? Why isn't the derrick the most important thing here? I guess I don't understand if all they want to do is get, have enough, if, if the compound people just want enough oil to go 2,000 miles to, I think it was called the Beautiful Paradise. And Humongous wants to, wants, I mean, I get the impression maybe he wants the Derek, although they kind of keep saying, oh, he really just wants the tanker. And I'm sitting here going, look, guys, has everybody sat down at the negotiation table here? I think we could find an equitable solution without all the name calling and boomerang throwing. <laughs> yes, you know what I mean? They, like, there is yeah. enough for everybody. Or at least they could maybe maybe when when the compound has such lousy defense mechanisms and the one thing that Wes and Humongous have is they they have great you know strength and weapons and all that it's like maybe we can strike a deal we'll give you guys oil you know gas as you want it as long as you make sure that there's no other marauders as a matter of fact y'all could be the military <laughs> <laughs> i really like that idea we have been talking about for weeks this exact idea of why wasn't some kind of deal struck. For one, Humongous just wants everything. He doesn't want to strike a deal. He just wants to kill people and take things. Mm -hmm. Well, now, I'm not... It's not that you didn't say it convincingly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not convinced, and I've always been on the fence, because the crazy thing about Humongous is he, he does appear compassionate in some moments. Like, he kind of lightly puts Wes in a sleeper hold, and he doesn't really hold it against him. And then he says there's been too much bloodshed, too much violence. Just walk away. Like, no one has to die here anymore. We keep showing up with all this silliness, but I, I feel like saying Humongous is saying, listen, I don't like crucifying people. You just keep making me do it because we, you know, you're not 
walking away. At which point you'd sit down, you'd say, look, humongous, it's fine, but I think you're stepping over the line here. And maybe we can't give you everything, but we could give you gasoline enough for your little entourage. You know, I feel like the situation we have brewing here is your classic third act rom-com storyline where you've got these two parties they just need to get over themselves and get together but someone has either said something or done something like maybe one of them has been laying siege to the other for several days and the other one tried to sneak out and get extra vehicles behind the other person's back and they're just at each other's throat and one of them just needs to swallow their pride. You know, maybe Lord Humongous needs to find a boombox and a <laughs> raincoat and just stand outside the compound with that thing above his head and just blast, uh, what was it, Phil Collins or something like that? Peter, Peter Gabriel. There we go. <laughs> I can never keep them straight. But. Well, I, I, that's the thing. Like, I would think Humongous wants the, the oil derrick. I mean, the oil derrick, like, a tanker's a tanker. You fill it up, mm -hmm. and then it's gone, and you're done. The oil derrick is a font that keeps giving. Exactly. So I, I, I only assume that the tanker is precious to the compound people because they want to leave the wasteland and go 2,000 miles away. The oil derrick isn't important to them. Yeah, if the Lord Humongous went away, like if he said, you know what, we're going to go hang out over here for about a week, and then they check back in a week's time, the compound dwellers are going to be gone. They will have packed up and left, and with the marauders not harassing them anymore, Maybe they would leave the compound completely intact, leave behind all of the instructions on how to process gasoline and turn oil into right. to fuel, <laughs> you know, instead of doing what they eventually do at the end of the movie and blowing that sucker up. <laughs> right. Which, which is, again, is another, that's like a foot in your eye, humongous. Mm -hmm. You know, not a thumb in your eye. It's a foot in your <laughs> eye. It's like, but, but I, yeah, that's the, I mean, humongous says, I'll give you safe passage. I mean, isn't that what he says? That he says, like, they, they can... Wait, wait, do you believe him? Oh, I kind of do. Well... <laughs> oh, Rebecca, Rebecca, Rebecca. I want to, I mean... You are so wrong. I, I'm firmly in Zeta's camp on this one. That he is not going to hold up his end of the bargain. He is looking to get them to surrender of a sort. Okay. To leave the compound, naively thinking that they're going to get to walk away. That way it's easier for him to kill them. Yeah, all. there's a... Every last one of them. Okay. There's a tiny bit of dramatic irony that we have in that when the Lord Humongous and Wes were just hugging it out, bro style, the Lord Humongous told Wes, you will have your revenge, but we do things my way. That's true. And so that promise of violence against the compound dwellers is that that little bit of information that tells us as viewers, oh yeah, this guy is is not for real. He's not going to keep his end of the bargain. He's going to barbecue these people and that'll be the end of them. You know, that is a great point. That is a great point. But he's really only talking potentially about the Outback Boy, the feral kid, right? <laughs> the feral kid, Outback Boy. Well, I think a reasonable person 
who wants to take revenge upon the death of a loved one would want to directly take it against the person who killed him. So yes, the feral child. Yeah. Wes is not a normal person. Yeah. He indicated that in revenge, he wanted to kill them all. Yeah. He wanted to attack the compound in revenge for one child's actions. Mm -hmm. Well, Because he's a psychopath. Wes is a berserker. Yes. Yes, that's what, and and what's great is Wes actually isn't in charge. He needs to be put in in check sometimes with you know a a, a chain dog leash and he needs a sleeper hold and you know every <laughs> yeah. once in a while you got to call him a puppy. He's an overzealous middle management type. Yes, he's an overzealous <laughs> middle management. That's right. I'm not saying I'm right, and I won't even say it confidently that I I believe Lord Humong- Humongous. I, I just it crossed my mind. That's all. It crossed my... He keeps showing up with, you know, a diplomacy. (laughs) I love the idea of there being some sort of agreement between the marauders and the compound, especially you mentioned acting as sort of a military, as an extended defense, which can also be seen as like paying off the mafia. Mm -hmm. Or no, the mafia paying off the police. Sure. Stuff like that. Well, and then everybody does a thing like the guy with the raccoon hat. He could be the entertainment. You know what I mean? There's kind of a little (laughs) bit of something for everybody. There's probably a doctor among them. Maybe he's sort of general health care. We got a cutaway. We got more than enough mechanics. We got, uh, you know, people who are great at archery. Maybe you have an entertainment, uh, you know, group. I, I guess what what's interesting is Lord Humongous also wants the tanker. Not the Derek, the tanker. I think he's greedy. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he wants to do the work. He wants, because they say that at the end, they say, listen, all they want is the tanker. So if we drive it straight out, they're going to chase us. And you're like, well, why wouldn't they just go right into the compound and be like, let them have the tanker. It's fine. Or kill them if you want, but don't spend more than 15 minutes on it. Yeah, they're kind of like magpies. They see that shiny tanker. Yeah. And they want the instant gratification of the fuel Mm -hmm. that's inside. They don't necessarily want to put in the legwork that Papagallo and his other other people have put in well but back to do you think this thing if is this little thing you know the the tension there between then agrarian societies and nomadic societies because lord humongous he just wants the tanker they're not interested in setting up shop again at the refinery and just having like you know what what, what might be like kind of like a roadhouse you know vibe or a little town kind of like we have on like you know eastern california on your way to arizona <laughs> Nevada. They got that type of thing. It kind of looks like the refinery with humongous out front. I mean, he's only interested in the tanker because they're nomadic and that's how they like it. And so a tanker is something that you can at least roam around with. Hmm. That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, Papagallo, I mean, see, that's what I understand. They they set up, they're building, they have a little nascent state. And you're like, right? With it, it starts with your natural, you know, your natural resources. Like like any community or society would. You're like, yeah, we're, we're by the Tigris and Euphrates River. Why? Because it's it's it's, it's good land because there's fresh water. All right, well, so oil is a real big thing here. Let's set up shop here, and then we got to defend it and whatever. I, that's the thing. I don't I don't understand this tanker. Why is the tanker tanker tanker? If you're gonna go to paradise, that's fine. But then just strike some other deal. I know I'm beating a dead, <laughs> you know, beat feral kid, but I just don't get it. It's like they're they're gonna go two thousand miles, so give up the oil, Derek. Then you don't even want it. I. Th- I think they 
are willing to give up the Derek, if they could leave, if they could leave in peace with the fuel that they need to go the two thousand miles, mm-hmm. and actually feel like Lord Humongous would actually let them go, I think they would. Yeah, but. The offer that they've been given is walk away with nothing or die. Yeah. Walking away with nothing is also a death sentence. Either mm-hmm. Humongous goes back on his deal and kills them. Yeah. Or they die in the wasteland anyways because they have no supplies and very few skills. Well, they do, uh, do, a few of the people in the compound say he said he'd provide safe passage. Now, I'm not saying he would. I'm not saying he's not a double dealer, <laughs> this Lord Humongous. He might be a double dealer, but at least was something discussed. Yeah, his idea of safe passage, I think, is not attacking them. Yeah. I don't think his idea of safe passage is helping them leave. Yeah. Providing transportation or supplies. He expects them to just literally walk away. Yeah. Like with if nothing. he if he walked up to them and said, Okay, listen, I've got one of the factions in my horde, you know, maybe they're tired of dust and we hear from the scouts that we captured and tortured. Sorry about that. That, you know, you guys want to go north to this green place. Well, there's a faction in my horde that wants to go to the green place, too. Maybe you guys can work together. You guys can go up to the green place. Horde protects the (laughs) settlers. Settlers provide for the horde. And you guys can go off, go north. Leave me the compound. Leave me the books. I don't know how hot the oil needs to be in order to separate. So leave me all the books and stuff, and we'll just do a trade that way. And, you know, like I said, it goes back to that third act rom-com situation of just people not understanding each other. There are so, so many scenarios how this could have gone different. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're right. You're right. In a variety of mutually beneficial ways. Right. But the two personalities of Papagallo and Lord Humongous, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating because you're like, isn't this kind of how societies and states and civilizations were all formed? In it, or, or, or not? <laughs> or slaughtered? <Yeah. laughs> but it's a, it's a great little microcosm, the whole thing. I mean, what is the, what's the entire movie take place on? Like, I don't know, 15 acres? Yeah. It's it's not a lot. I mean, you, like every night, you know, the hum- Lord Humongous and his his brigands go away into the sunset, and you're like, yeah, about 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 you know, eight hundred yards, right? <laughs> yeah. Like just over the next little just, rise out of view. Just over the next little rise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, somebody should have pointed out the splinter in Lord Humongous's eye. He said, "You know what? You're right. There has been too much bloodshed." And you keep pointing the finger over here, and you're putting the onus of responsibility on us, humongous. But look, we just want safe passage, and you keep telling us to walk away. But you're 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 a line stepper. You're a line stepper. You're const- it's not appropriate, humongous. It's not appropriate to come here and tell us just to walk away. Yeah, I think that's that's what happens when you establish your power position based on the terrorizing and brutalizing of others. If that's how you've gotten to the head of your particular horde by just being the biggest baddest dude around you can't suddenly turn around and be like oh let's peacefully negotiate this you know he's he's got an image to uphold it's a large muscled slightly sunburned but also at the same time kind of pale in places image (laughs) well hey let's let's be clear there's only (laughs) one guy in the whole movie who has a microphone (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I mean, Humongous has the conch perpetually. (laughs) Like that Lord of the Flies business. I mean, Humongous does, he's got a microphone. 
Yeah, I'd hate to have to communicate with him because all he'd have to do to to shut you down is just hold up that microphone and go, la, 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 I can't hear you. (laughs) He would drown you out. Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't, I mean, I don't think he's happy. No? That's all That's all I'm saying. I don't think he's happy. I think he sees the tension and he's tired of it himself. I think he, uh, every night he has stress headaches <laughs> himself. You know, he doesn't want to crucify these guys on top of a hill. And at the end of the day, he does not have the oil. Like, you kind of want, if you're a humongous psychologist, you say, listen, but every morning you wake up and you're still wanting your solution isn't, you know, you, you, you need to, you, you know, Humongous, what's the definition of insanity, right? Crazy. Waking up every morning doing the same thing and expecting a different result. 